I love a good metaphor, and all of you have heard me preach at least three sermons, so you know I can get lost in a good metaphor, or you can get lost in my good metaphor. This breathtaking theme that we've chosen for Advent is so rich to me. The imagery of of catching our breath, of holding our breath, of not being able to breathe. It all has so much to say about the spiritual life, about human life. And not to give you too much of how the sausage is made, but this week I got lost in all the breathing metaphors. I picked one and started a sermon and couldn't figure out how to end it. So then I picked a different one and I wrote the beginning of that sermon and got stuck. And then again, and I, so I came up with three beginnings of Advent sermons this week, I guess four now. But I struggled to find my way to an ending. Plus there were cookies to make and a 35-year-old donkey to deal with. So this morning I've got three sermon beginnings for you. Hopefully I won't lose you in the metaphors. Beginning one, Rochelle and I have been binge-watching Homeland. You don't have to know anything about that show to know this scene that I'm going to talk to you about. You've definitely seen it before. It's a trope. The one in which a character goes through some life-threatening trauma. And in fact, they don't seem to have made it. They're lying there, lifeless, another character trying to resuscitate them, pumping their chest, inflating their lungs, but it's hopeless. They give up, and we, the audience, watch for a long beat as it sinks in. They're gone. They've died. And just when we've accepted that the end has come, they spring back to life. This story, this metaphor of resuscitation, it's in so many of the Advent and Christmas stories. This season is filled with scenes of people who think it's all over, who believe that the worst has come. People who are beginning to realize that theirs will be an unhappy ending, not what they had hoped for. There's Elizabeth and Zechariah who have wanted to have a child. They've grown old waiting to have a child. And slowly, year by year, it has dawned on them that it's not to be. There's Mary and Joseph looking for shelter, searching for a place to have their child, somewhere safe and warm and being turned away door after door. It's getting late and they're running out of options and it begins to sink in to them that they're not going to find a place in time, that there is no safe place for them. There's Simeon, a prophet who has been told that he will see the Messiah before he dies. But he's gotten old waiting. It's been years of popping in and out of the temple, looking at every child that comes in to be dedicated, years of waiting for some further word from God that says, it's this one. But all he's gotten is silence. And he starts to wonder, he starts to doubt, I imagine, whether he heard God right in the first place, whether he heard God at all. He starts to suspect that maybe he won't make it, that he'll die before he sees the redemption of his people. And in every one of these scenes, the audience waits for a long beat in the silence 
believing that the worst has come, and then an angel, an innkeeper's stable, a baby, and the sense that this one is different. Advent is the story of resuscitation, of people waiting for this unhappy ending that never comes. Of us, when we are waiting for the worst, when things look least promising, when it seems like it's all over, hearing the voice of God say, no, this is not the end. That's part of Advent, but it's, it's not the whole thing, which is why I couldn't just finish that sermon and be done with it. So beginning to, metaphor two, Advent is about the last gasp. That's a phrase I've heard a lot, especially since 2016. This is the last gasp of white supremacy. This is the last gasp of homophobia. This is the last gasp of that anti-immigration sentiment. What we're seeing now is just a final, desperate attempt to regain power. It's a testimony to how far we've come that our opponents are fighting so fiercely. This is just the last gasp of an old narrative of a dying way of life. It's what you say when things seemed to be headed in one direction and suddenly veered off in a different one, or suddenly threw it in reverse and went as fast as possible in the other direction. It's what you say when you're hoping that what you're seeing in the present is just a blip on the screen, when you're trying to convince yourself that the progress that you've made cannot possibly be rolled back so quickly or thoroughly. It's what you say when things look bleak, but you still believe you're headed to that happy ending. You still want to believe. The characters of Advent still believe, want to believe. Every year we read the words of Elizabeth and Zechariah's son, John, who says, even now the axe is at, is at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every year we read the words of Mary, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Every year we read the words of Simeon, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Times are rough in ancient Israel. The people live under the occupation of the empire. Corruption goes unchecked. Economic inequality is rampant. National and ethnic groups are fiercely divided. Violence and war reign. But the people in our stories are convinced that all of that is coming to an end. No matter how bad things look right now, this is just the last gasp of a dying way of life. And then John is beheaded. And Jesus is crucified. And the world that these characters are waiting for still hasn't arrived. If this is evil's last gasp, it's been a long one. We are still waiting. The story of Advent is at least partly a story of people preparing for the happy ending that never comes. At least not the way they expect it, and not yet. 
but that didn't seem like a super inspiring sermon, so I didn't finish it. Instead, beginning three. My track career lasted all of one season. I joined the eighth grade team to be close to my girlfriend, which it turns out is not how sports teams work. The coach, Coach K, put me on the mile since I was too slow for short distances and too weak for the field events. And since I was terrified of him, I agreed to it. Coach K had arms the size of my thighs, and my goal from the first day of practice was just not to upset him. On that first day, as we ran wind sprints down the halls of our building while it rained outside, I asked his permission to go throw up in the bathroom before doing so. Once I had, I got right back in line to run more sprints. So when I lined up for my first race, my only objective was to make him proud, or at least not make him angry. I'd gotten new shoes for the occasion, expensive ones from like a real running store. I sidled up to the line, twice the size of all of my competition. But when the shot went off, I settled in about two-thirds of the way back, nowhere near the front, but not like all the way in the back. And I felt pretty good about that until my left shoe came untied. It was the beginning of my second lap around. I had to do four. I felt my shoe getting looser, and I looked down to see the laces just flopping around. I decided to ignore it. I couldn't lose the time to stop and tie it. I reasoned like someone who was on pace to set a world record. And as I ignored it, with every step, it got looser until my heel was coming out each time I lifted my foot. But still, I wouldn't retie it. And this, I think, is the hardest part for anyone over the age of 13 to understand. But I was certain, I was absolutely certain, that if I stopped, Coach K would be furious. That it was somehow unforgivable to have one's shoe come untied in the middle of a race. I was sure that if I stopped, that was the end of the race and of my track career and maybe of my life. He had arms the size of my thighs. So finally, with the shoe threatening to trip me and still totally unwilling to stop, I made a split-second decision and I kicked it off on the third turn and started sprinting to the end with one shoe on. I used every ounce of my energy for the, that final turn and straight away, pleased to see I was nowhere near the back of the pack. And in fact, I passed more than one person as I made my one-footed finish. And I was certain that I had made my coach proud and I had made it to the finish triumphant. I had completed my first race. I crossed that finish line, huffing and puffing, barely able to catch my breath, and I collapsed into the grass on the inside of the track. It was over. I had done it. My other shoe could wait. And then a teammate who wasn't in the race came and stood over me and said, what are you doing? You only ran three laps get up, you have to keep going. <laughs> and having spent everything I had already, I hobbled back onto my feet and I jogged, basically walked, one-shoed around the track again. When I got to turn three, I picked up my discarded sneaker 
And by then, I had caught my breath, and I found just enough, just enough for a second last sprint across the finish. That's really the story of Advent, the story of people expecting an ending and getting instead a new beginning, of people thinking it was over in one way or another, for better or worse, and realizing that instead it went on. The unhappy ending they feared of being clobbered by their coach or giving birth in the street or not living to see the hope that they'd been promised, that unhappy ending never comes. And that happy ending they're expecting where fruitless trees get chopped down and the lowly ones get lifted up, where evil is on its last gasp and they have crossed the finish line, that happy ending hasn't come either. Not yet. Because Advent is not about endings, it's about beginnings. God doesn't come to earth and take on human life to end it. God comes to earth to keep it going. God takes on human life to show that God is invested in it deeply, invested in us, in the project of human life. God wants to see how it turns out, when it all turns out, which is not yet. God arrives to bring another beginning to the world and to us. So if you feel like everything is crashing down and you're waiting for the inevitable, unhappy end, good news. It's not over. God is with us. Get up. Keep going. And if you're feeling like God's pretty much got things figured out on this evil situation, all of this greed and corruption and racism, it's just the last gasp of a dying way of life. Bad news. It's not over. And good news. God is with us. Get up. Keep going. God's arrival on earth, God's arrival in our lives is not the culmination. It's not the end. It's a new beginning. It's a second wind that lets us keep going when we think we've spent it all. And not to get lost in the metaphor, but it's exactly what we need to stay in the race.